In this episode of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. We were always detained at borders because we looked nuts and then, I don't know, and we acted nuts. Welcome to episode 110 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. This one is part one in a series of interview episodes with Pleasant Gaiman. Yes, the Pleasant Gaiman. Now, if you don't know who Pleasant Gaiman is, I have a question for you. Did you just disembark off of your UFO? And also answer me this. How is it possible for you to travel through interstellar space in the first place? Because this is my point. What planet are you from if you don't know who Pleasant Gaiman is? You must not be from Earth. But seriously, <laughs> bad jokes right to start off. Pleasant is incredibly prolific. She seems to have done everything. I, I almost don't see how it's possible to not have heard of Pleasant Gaiman. She's one of the founding people involved in the Los Angeles punk scene in the 1970s and 1980s. Pleasant's been writing for a variety of publications since the 70s and has also authored several books. She's an actor that's been in a ton of movies, TV shows, music videos, kind of you name it. Pleasant is an internationally acclaimed belly dancer and burlesque performer. She's a practicing witch, tarot card reader, psychic, so, so much more. Pleasant's done everything, it seems like. Well, regardless of whether you know about Pleasant Gaiman or not, you are going to get to know her a good deal better via this episode of the Bobcast and parts two and three that will follow this episode down the line. She's a really incredible person that has squeezed in three or four lifetimes worth of living in the very short amount of time that she's been here. She's done so much just amazing and rad stuff. Well, here's the lowdown on this episode and also a little bit about the two episodes in this Pleasant series that will follow this one. This first interview episode is going to cover a little bit of Pleasant Gaiman's early life. We're going to talk about the days of the very early Los Angeles punk scene, and we're going to talk quite a bit about Pleasant's music. That was my introduction to Pleasant Gaiman, her music from her first band, The Screamin' Sirens. 1985 was the year when I first heard the Screamin' Sirens song Maniac on the Enigma Variations compilation Double LP, and wow, that song Maniac. That song really just conveys what a perfect rock and roll band is capable of. A really fun band. The Sirens, I mean, they nailed the fun aspect of rock and roll. In this episode, you are going to hear two Scream and Sirens songs, and those songs will show up in between the interview segments with Pleasant. You're going to see just how fun rock and roll can be via the Scream and Sirens and Pleasant Gaiman. That being said, I might as well get out of the way. The songs that you're going to hear, the very first one that's going to come up as kind of intermissions in that interview segment is the song Love Slave. And then the second song you're going to hear is my favorite song, Maniac. Both songs are off the 1984 record Fiesta. A great record. Incredible. Grab it if you can. Definitely. Now back to the content of the episodes in this series. Part one I already talked about. Part two is going to focus more on the belly dancing, burlesque, kind of the writing and acting facets of Pleasant's life. Then part three, we're going to talk about paranormal stuff, practicing witchcraft, tarot, and her psychic abilities, those type of things. 
more aspects of the very strange, wonderful, and extraordinary life and times of Pleasant Gaiman. Well, let's get to it. Right after I mentioned a couple of things, you know, I have to pay the bills, so to speak. Join my Patreon first up, please. Go to patreon.com slash I want to party with Bob and sign up. You'll get access to an ad and music free version of this episode and a lot more. In fact, I've been working on some bonus episodes for that Patreon. I've got one up there right now, and that's kind of a brand new series of podcasts I've been doing other than the I Want to Party with Bob stuff. It's called Two Minutes of Terror. Those are two minute long ghost stories, scary folk tales, urban legends, that kind of thing. Very scary and very awesome. So please go to that Patreon page and sign up. The lowest tier is a mere $1 a month. Signing up does really, really help me out. I would appreciate it. Also, this episode is brought to you by Good Life Digestive Health. You're going to hear a few words very soon all about the benefits of using their products and how it can help your digestive system. Yes, indeed. Speaking of digestive systems, why don't we do the... Beer of the Episode. That's right, the beer of the episode in this part one in the Pleasant Gaming series of episodes is the Turd Ferguson Imperial Brown Ale from none other than Plan 9 Ale House. The Turd Ferguson Brown Ale is brewed with brown sugar, Cascade and Simcoe hops, plus a little coffee and vanilla for good measure, chocolate creaminess, plus the characteristics of a good brown ale make up this 7.7% alcohol by volume ale. Let's try it and see if Turd Ferguson knows the answer to the question, who is Andre the Giant? Stay tuned. Ooh, yeah, it's, it's good. You know, a good brown ale like Newcastle has a little bit of sweetness to it, right? And Newcastle's not even the best brown ale out there. This is good. It's got a little bit of a hoppy bite to it, and it's strong. You can definitely tell it's a little bit stronger than the, like a Newcastle, obviously, because Newcastle's like 1% alcohol or something like that. This is really good. Once again, Plan 9. Excellent job. I do really appreciate you, Plan 9. You can enjoy this beer and many other fine, fine beers, plus great food and a hell of a record collection. Yes, they have the best collection of vinyl records for sale in North San Diego County. It's easy. Just go to Plan 9 Ale House. They're at 155 East Grand Avenue in Escondido, California. You can reach Plan 9 by phone at 760-489-8817 or on the web at Plan9AleHouse.com. Plan 9 Alehouse, beer to the people. Now, a few words from the good people of Good Life Digestive Health and on to the early life L.A. punk stuff and music of Pleasant Gaming. Please stay tuned. Oh, my stomach. I ate too much ice cream and now I don't feel so good. Sometimes eating too much dairy can cause digestive system issues even in the youngest of people. Cutting down on foods that can cause digestive system issues is a good step towards a healthier digestive system. But let me tell you about a line of products that can help you even more. The natural, holistic remedies and nutritional products from Good Life Digestive Health can help bring an unruly gut back into its healthy and balanced state. 
If you're dealing with issues such as irritable bowel syndrome, diverticulitis, ulcerative colitis, or any other bowel or gut disorder, even indigestion and heartburn, the quality products from Good Life Digestive Health may be able to help. Simply visit goodlifedigestivehealth.com and check out the wide range of products designed to help you achieve good digestive system balance and health. Products like the Healthy Bowel Support and Digest Plus Dietary Supplements can help you achieve a healthy and balanced digestive system. Just visit goodlifedigestivehealth.com for more information. Good Life Digestive Health is here to help you go from this to this Ah. with natural, holistic remedies that can help create balance and health for your digestive system. Well, welcome, Pleasant Gaming, back to the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. I think this is your third time of being of doing something with me, I think. so. I know, that's crazy. Three's <laughs> <laughs> a charm, baby. <laughs> third time's a charm. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and have you on an episode. And I think we're going to spend a little bit of time with you and get to know you quite a bit better over the course of these episodes. With Pleasant, we're going to do... Kind of, I'm thinking a three-part series where we really get some in-depth knowledge of Pleasant. So let's talk about your kind of really early life real quick. The last time you sent me an audio file, we actually didn't talk, but you said you were born and spent your early life in New York State. Is that right? Yes, I was born in, in New York City, and I grew up until I was eight in upstate New York. My house was so rural and so not near anything that usually when I tell people where I live, the only way I can describe it is, you know, kind of where Don Draper and Mad Men live, but not in the suburbs, <laughs> out in the sticks. But it was, it was like um, upstate New York, which I, as I, I think I told you on the UFO podcast, I later found out after I moved to LA that that part of upstate New York is like, uh, according to Whitley Strieber, quote, quote, a hotbed for UFO sightings. So after, uh, like when my parents split up when I was pretty young, I was four, but when I was eight, um, we moved from there to my mom and my siblings. You know, we moved to Middletown, Connecticut because my mom got a job at Wesleyan University teaching theater. Hmm. And that was an all men's school at the point. It was just beginning to come to become co-ed. So basically I grew up from the age of eight onwards till I was about 14. I grew up in the midst of like all the crazy, amazing 60s stuff. Like I was, I was thrown out of fourth grade. Uh, well, not thrown out, but like sent home because I had a strike armband on one arm and a war moratorium armband on the other arm. And oh, wow. My first concert was like during that time, my babysitters brought me to see the Grateful Dead on campus at the Wesley at Wesleyan, you know, on the football field and the Merry Pranksters were there. And I remember their bus was parked and it said further. And there was someone doing a headstand on top of it with their feet in the lotus position, the whole like three and a half hours of the concert. And there was like this ring around the rosy ring of like a million hippies like, you know, that went around the whole outside of where the concert was. And that was also the first time I drank red wine and had a joint and, you know, hashtag 60s. <laughs> and then <laughs> when, when I was 14, I went to boarding school in Massachusetts because I was really smart. And, um, you know, 
like from the test there, I was, uh, you know, that they did like scholastic tests. I was really intelligent, but my mom had applied to all these private schools in New England were trying to get like lower income kids in that, you know what I mean? It was the beginning of trying to do like charity and let them in. So I got into the school and my mom basically sent me there because I was messing around with her drama students. <laughs> so, um, she thought that was going to be a safe place and, you know, until she didn't realize, but I realized that most of the people that were going to the school were rich and that meant that their older brothers and sisters and in some cases their parents had access to like the best fucking drugs on earth. So there went that concept. Um, <laughs> and um, so I was, I was at that school for about a year and a half and I loved it because it, you know, it wasn't like the small town, like cheerleading only stuff that would have been the high school, you know, in, in, in Middletown, it was people that were really interesting and really smart and stuff. And, mm. you know, we had, we had a lot of fun. Plus it was like isolated again out in the sticks. So we, you know, we could do whatever we wanted. Like no one would know if you cut class to go out in the woods to, to smoke pot or whatever, you sure, know, and there sure, was, yeah. there was like street freaking going on there because that was just coming into fashion. <laughs> So when my mom told me we were moving on the payphone in the hallway of the dorm, she wouldn't tell me where, but she said we were probably moving and I'd probably have to, you know, go out of school. And I literally started bawling, crying because I loved it at the school. And then she told me, she told me a week later where we were moving. When it turned out to be Los Angeles, I was just like, when are we going? When are we going? When are we going? And she said, well, you should finish the semester out. And I kind of really didn't want to. I just wanted to be in L.A. right away because this was like the height of Glitter Rock, you know. Um, but I did have to finish the semester out. But that's okay because days after I went there, I turned 16, went and visited her at her new job at 20th Century Fox and got a part in a Roger Corman movie which he, she had to sign off on because I was a minor. Yeah. But I knew who Roger Corman was from, from all the TV stations, you know, showing like Little Shop of Words and shit late at night. Yeah, yeah. And so I, to me, that was like working with Cecil B. DeMille. I fucking oh, yeah. loved all of his movies. So I wound up being in that movie Hollywood Boulevard with a bunch of other women who were, you know, not as young as I was, but not old by any means. You know, they were, I think they were like, you know, legit like young actresses. We were all getting, um, we were all doing a quote, quote, audition for a film. And so we were all wearing white t-shirts and, you know, like white sleeve, like sleeveless tank top t-shirts and getting sprayed across the boobs with a fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> is this a wet t-shirt contest or am I auditioning for a movie? What's going no, on here? No, it was in the movie, it was called the audition scene because this was just, you know, this was like a crazy, like, fucking Roger Corman movie. So of course there's gotta be some kind of thing like that. In it, you know? <laughs> was that the first movie you were ever in? Um, no, I was in like independent college films and stuff like that when I was like little on campus, you know, and, oh, okay. and I was acting on stage and stuff like that. But this was like the first like Hollywood movie I was in. Ah, okay. um, and then I just, I kept doing a lot of movies. I mean, I, I'm in like almost every like, late seventies and early eighties rock and roll film you, you yeah. can think of from like Alley Girl to Rock and Roll High School to like I mean, I don't even remember how many of them I'd have to I think there's a kind there's a filmography on my website, but I don't know if it's even got all of them because I forgot that was like how most people who were punks were earning their living like in that 
late seventies and early eighties. Do do because of the look, right? It was like let's get them in here. Yeah, They're great for extras, look. you know, or just whatever to be in the scene yeah. with the punk rockers or whatever. Oh yeah, and sometimes not extras. Like in Thrashing, I wasn't an extra. You know, the skateboarding movie. I was like in it, and then in my own film that I co-wrote with Max Cash, who was the director, and this came out. It was called The Running Kind. It came out. We filmed it in 1988, and it came out in 1989, and it was supposed to be an indie film, but MGM picked it up. But there's millions between that that I can't even, like, I, I can't even tell you how often I get texts from, like, random people, like, DMs on Instagram saying, hey, I, I saw you last night in blah, 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 blah. They'd be like, oh, my God, I fucking forgot I did that one. You know what I mean? <laughs> You've done so much that you can't keep track. I didn't know you were in rock no, and roll high it's, school. It's, I had no idea about that, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's me and uh, George and Paul or, like, Pat Smear and Darby from the Germs were all in it. Everyone we knew in the punk scene was in it. Oh, yeah, Up in Smoke, I was in it. The Germs were in it. Teresa Carica's who like did my lobotomy stand everyone you could think of from the la punk scene was in up and smoke so you moved to california when you're around 16 or so i yeah i just turned 16 that was in 1975 and did you go to beverly hills high school was that the the high school you yeah because i was i was just out of the district for fairfax high i wanted to i tried to um take an address this is so but it's true so I could be in Hollywood High because that was the I mean I just wanted to because of the name I didn't care about you know what I mean what it was it or what it was work. sure <laughs> wow I had and it's so funny because I ask you that because I found like you're saying people will DM you and say oh my god I saw you in this I saw you in that I was just looking for music last night that you've been a part of or in some way so I put in Pleasant Gaming on YouTube and the first thing that pops up is something called MTV Punks and Posers, done by Golden oh, yeah, Boys. Yeah, yeah. And you're in it. Yeah. You're like in the very beginning, and you're kind of spaced but, out yeah. throughout. Yeah, you know? that's it. A lot of that was filmed at my house. That was filmed at Disgraceland. That's and what I thought. What happened was, with that, like they were, MTV was doing it, and they wanted, I don't even know how we became, like, because everywhere else was like a club. So, that for MTV to come over, like Steve Olson, the skateboarder, like I guess not even realizing that it was connected to MTV until the last minute because he always hung out at Disgraceland. He um he knew the director or the, the coordinator or something, so I told them that we wouldn't we wouldn't do it unless we had sixteen cases of Corona, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so they provided that, and so then. Then when they were getting ready to film that, you know that there's a scene in it where we, we drive up in the pink Cadillac, right? Yeah, yeah. Which Okay, so that pink Cadillac was called the pink Cadillac from hell. And it was technically, it was my bass player in the Scream and Sirens, Laura's car, but everyone that lived at Disgraceland had a key to it. And her brother had, he, her brother had bought it and brought a Hustler magazine into Earl Scheib because I think it was white, and opened it up to the centerfold where, you know, how Larry Flint always show, showed pink, right? Yeah, right, They right. pointed to the centerfold's vagina at the fucking paint store and said, I want you to make the card this color. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. And they did. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> yeah. So, so then him and his friend brought it up to, like, Angeles Crest Forest. They had tried to saw the roof off because it was a sedan. 
and it didn't work. So then um, it, it caught the back seat on fire. And so then they, they did target practice on it, but then it still ran. So they like brought it back down and gave it to Laura. And everyone at Disgraceland had a key to that car. And it's actually featured also on the cover of Tux and the Horseheads. Life's so cool. Because Mike Mart was my roommate then at the time. <laughs> oh my! I was going to ask you about Tex and the Horseheads too, because you were buddies with Tex Alcala. Tex Alcala Jones is what she went by, right? Wasn't that her name? Yeah, or Tex. We just called her Tex, but that was her name, Tex Alcala. But all of us were we were all like really good friends, and her house and my house, Disgraceland, were like around the corner from each other, and every band would stay at either or, or sometimes split up between both. Mike Mart was my roommate with Iris Berry. That was, this was after like Belinda from the Go-Go's moved out. Disgraceland was like a wild punk house and it seriously is on still the map to the stars home. No kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not making this up. There's no way you can make it up because, because of the people that hung out there. Like, I mean, it was like everybody you could think of from rock and roll and some of them got wildly famous like the red eyed chili peppers yeah. or the go-go's or like guns and roses you know like duff was always over there all the skateboard champions were over there i mean and i was writing for thrasher at the time too so it was like yeah. skating rock and roll insanity at that time did you write um, for the notes notes from the underground part of thrasher was that what you did for thrasher I wrote for that, but I also did features on music and stuff. And then also my band was on Skate Rock, the first yeah. volume of Skate Rock. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I doing remember that. A, a song called Heartbreak Train. We we were all just like, like my first intro to, to skateboarding was that we could see there was a lot of like, well, like me and other girl punks from L.A., like, we we knew there was a scene going on in Orange County, and this was before it turned all hardcore. And then it turned out that a lot of the boys in Orange County were skaters and surfers. And since we were like, quote, quote, landlocked in Hollywood, <laughs> <laughs> and me especially coming from the East Coast, we were, I was fascinated with the whole Annette Funicello surf scene and, the, you know, like all the skateboarders and um, surfers that were into punk rock. So me and Laura, my bass player, started going down to Orange County a lot, and we would just spend the weekend down there partying, because also Mike Mart was from down there. We, we knew a bunch of people and other bands that were down there anyway, like TSOL and people that we already hung out with, but we started hanging out with skateboarders. And so then I, I was already writing for the LA Weekly at this point, and, yeah. um, and you know, I started in 1978. So when skating started being a thing during the Z-Boys, but way before the documentary was made you know yeah i wanted to do a thing about tony alva for the la weekly and so i did it and we we met at some club i forgot where it was and in the in the in the middle of the interview or just about when it was over we were already getting kind of drunk and that he turned out to be the first person i ever kissed who didn't have their front teeth <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting first. Tony, <laughs> yeah, that was a first. Um, but it, I thought it was some skateboarding, but it was from a bar fight. But then we wound up getting busted later on that same night. And we were with Bob Forrest from Thelonious Monster and like Boom Boom, my drummer from the Sirens and um, Rock Vodka from Tex and the Horseheads. Like, I can't even remember how many bars that we've been to, but we were... We were driving somewhere and then somehow got into like a fucking 
police chase. (laughs) (laughs) And so we uh, went. You thought this was going to be a linear interview, right? No, it doesn't have to be at all. I like where you're going, wherever you're going. I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding you. So we wound up all getting, you know, kind of arrested. And it was also, I don't know, it wound up at the Wilcox police station, but everything wound up being okay from that. But that, that was like, you know, that really started the hanging out. And then all of us would go down to Venice to hang out with, with people that were skating and surfing and, you know, it was, there was just a huge like crossover, but between that and this was like I said before, hardcore punk became known as like only like guys and jocks and masters. Yeah. The surfers, skaters were way different. They were way cooler. And Tony had a band called The Scoundrels that started playing in Hollywood, and so that was a really cool aspect of a sub scene that was going on. Like like Christian Hasoy used to come to disgrace and with his dad because Christian was oh, like Oh, yeah, he was 14. always with his dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ivan was his dad, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ivan, yeah. Yep. And they they would just be all night and then all these other skaters. Yeah, it was nuts. Wow. <laughs> so people were always doing like acid drops off the porch at the Spaceland in addition to like blasting the cramps and the stooges full volume 24-7. I mean, it was nuts. Where was Disgraceland? It's in Hollywood, right? I mean, yeah, obviously. It's on the corner of Castle Place and Selma Avenue. And it, the building is still there, but it's a language school. But it's it's right across from Selma Avenue Elementary School and right behind the K-8 through school at Blessed Sacrament Church. So every morning of the week with, with all of our insane hangovers, we would have recess on both sides, punishing us for our illicit deeds. <laughs> oh, wow. That is rough. Yeah, yeah.
one thing I wanted to ask you, and this is something you said in that in the punks and posers thing, is that you you were going to school. You're really hung over a lot of the days because you'd be out till like three in the morning partying or whatever when you're around 17. And then one thing you said that really got me was they let you into the whiskey, but you had to tell them or prove to them that you were getting at least a B plus average in school for them to let you in or something like that. Yeah, that was that was Jim LaPena, the um the manager of the whiskey. <laughs> he was great. <laughs> And he used to do that. And they also let me in at the Starwood and I would fucking like park my school book at the bar downstairs and then go up to the VIP bar upstairs with the backstage. And they never made me show our report card. But Jim LaPena did that at all, to all the kids that were like regulars. I mean, Joan Jett was one of them. My, Randy Kay, who did lobotomy, was, was one of them. He would let us all in for free because we knew we were going there every night. But then also there was this waitress called Marsha Perloff, who I'm still friends with. And, you know, this was like way after the statute of limitations, I can say this. All the record company A&R people and stuff would come to the whiskey and Marsha would come up into the balcony where we were always sitting and she'd go, what, what are you having to drink? What's your drinks? And we'd be like, I can't afford drinks. And she'd like, order whatever the fuck you want. This is like on Atlantic's tab. They won't even check it. Or like Polygram's tab or something. So or whoever, right? We would, <laughs> yeah. That's great. <laughs> and then when I, when I turned 21, I mean, I worked at the whiskey from when I was 16 to like, probably like 18. I was a ticket taker at first. And then I started putting on shows there and stuff. When I turned 21, I went to the whiskey and I went to the upstairs bar and I said, I'm going to order my first legal drink. And the guy looks at me and he's like, ha oh, ha, oh, bullshit. You've been, you've been drinking here for years. And then I showed him my ID. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what kind of, what bands did you really like to see like way back in those days, whenever, you know, in the, in the days, say when you lived at Disgraceland, what kind of bands, if they came around, were you, were you really into well, I mean, the the bands that I've seen most of all bands are X because they live here and I love them. But the other bands that I've seen, like, all in different states and cities and countries, uh, well, obviously the Go-Go's because of my connection with them. But that, then the other bands are all from New York. And it's probably in this, well, they're probably equal order of how many shows I've seen. But the Cramps definitely in mm. all different states and in in um the uk and stuff and then the ramones and blondie no kidding cool okay cool cool yeah what about lobotomy your fanzine you did a fanzine yourself yeah. for a while right yeah it was me and randy k who is um, my buddy that we used to cut high school all the time with and he was best friends with joan jett and um lisa curlin who uh she, lisa curlin when i met her she was a zolar x groupie and wearing like like space helmets and capes and shit to school when I first transferred into school. And I saw her before I knew her. And then I met Randy Kay and we started hanging out and cutting school to go up to Hollywood Boulevard. And then he said the runaways, this was before the runaways, they had just barely been signed. And before they recorded, he said, um, Jones band, the runaways is rehearsing at SIR studios on Santa Monica. So Randy had a car and we, we drove over there. And we would just hang out there during their rehearsals. And then the quick who Kim Fowley also produced was there often. And then there was also like more famous bands, but we didn't kind of give a fuck about them because they were like metal or commercial.
com- commercial rock. Yeah, yeah. You know, so Randy and I were really into punk, and so was Lisa, and those were the only people in the school that was, like, early on. And so um, I'd always, like, been writing for, you know, my own diaries and doing, like, you know, writing, like, really long notes to people in school, and my diary entries were, like, you know, pages and pages long because I pretend I was taking notes in class and describe shit that was going on at any rock and roll concert or club I went to. Mm. When I heard about like Snipping Glue magazine, I, you know, because we would get the um, the papers from England, they'd come a few weeks late because they would come over on a boat, but we'd see Enemy and Sounds and Melody Maker and all of those. I saw posted st- stamp size pictures of like, Johnny Rotten or like there was something about snipping glue. So I was like, I'm going to start a fanzine. And I told my mom, I was calling it a magazine. I, I said, I'm going to start a magazine. And she's like, you can't start a magazine. You need a publisher and you need a lot of money. And, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, nope, I'm going to start it. So Randy and I started Lobotomy. It was kind of like a cross between Cream Magazine and Mad Magazine. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were total crazy rock and roll people, but we also were like lunatics that took a lot of drugs and we're really, Randy had an insanely amazing sense of humor. And then we got Teresa Caricas, who was in UCLA when we were in high school, but we met her in like 1975 and she took great photos. And she was the main photographer, but we also used photos from like Jenny Lenz or Ann Suma, or sometimes we just cut them out of English papers if we didn't, you know, if we were reviewing a record, but we didn't have a <laughs> like an actual photo, you know. So we started it in 1978, and the first issue—I can't remember if the first issue or the second issue—had the Sex Pistols at Winter at Winterland. But we all went up there in a car. So the people that were also writing for it, Lobotomy ran from 78 to 82, and we interviewed like everybody you think of. So the people that were also like the main writers were Kid Congo, whose name was Brian Tristan at that point, and Jeffrey Lee Pierce, who oh, didn't change yeah, yeah. his name. Yeah. Yeah, and then we'd get other people to write it through. Like there's in one of the issues, there's a story called um, How I Spent My Summer Vacation, Holidays in the Sun with Joan. And that was about Joan's first tour to the UK. And she left for that tour wearing like bell bottoms and white platform boots and a satin jacket. And she came back in a leather jacket with safety pins and sneakers on. And so this whole, it was like, she said she couldn't write. So Randy just held a tape recorder to her face and made her talk about the clubs there and the concerts they were playing and, and, you know, the damned and the sex pistols and all of that. So that was an amazing thing. But I found last year, or no, not last year, not 2020, but 2019, I was cleaning out a record closet and I found all the issues of lobotomy on the paper that I had, you know, which was all stolen from temp jobs and it was all different kinds of papers. Some was like onion skin, some was Xerox paper, some was like construction paper, just whatever I had, all the issues laid out with the original pay steps using like school glue or scotch paper, whatever, and the printer receipts in the envelopes. So I was going to have an art show in 2018, but it's going to be rescheduled, I hope, for fall this year called Paper, Scissors, Rock. We, you know, reprint all the issues of lobotomy exactly how they were, you know, because except, you know, like with with 
three staples instead of one staple, like how <laughs> sure. it was, because that was cheaper. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but do that and then have all my all the flyers I made for my band and clubs I was booking and different bands and stuff over the years. And, you know, all the song lyric books that we did for the Screaming Sirens and my band, the Ringling Sisters, and also Honk Up Your Horny, which was uh, supposed to be a one-night joke, but came because Dave Catching, who's been who's in the Lords of Mojave and you know Eagles of Death Metal and yeah. like a million other bands, he was the Ringling Sisters guitar player. And when everyone was late for practice, me and him would just fuck around, and he would he would play like old country songs on electric guitar, and I'd make up X-rated lyrics to them on the spot. So that turned into Honk If You're Horny, and it was supposed to be a one-night joke. And then Elvez, who was in, you know whose name is Robert Lopez, and he was in the Zeros, and I'd known him since he was 14. He, he asked us to play that night. I mean, I, I mean, that night, he asked us to open for him somewhere else, so then we had a second gig, and then we just kept getting gigs and gigs, and it turned into, a, like, a real band for five years, and we had, like, a hit in <laughs> on Euro MTV <laughs> and and with a video that we made in my yard with, like, when we, we were all, like, completely fucking drunk Shit and first. on hallucinogenics how we played every that's how we played every show and we'd have like black eyes and curler in our hair and you know like all the girls would try to look like like total crack whore versions of ZZ Top video <laughs> girls video and like, vixens right <laughs> yeah and like Annette Zelinskis from Blood on the Saddle and the Bangles or actually it was called the Bangs when she left it and also she played with the Screaming Silence she was my co-lead singer her name was Tanya fucker. My name was Tammy. Why not? Dave Catching's <laughs> name is <laughs> Dave's I name was Boyd Bones. So yeah, we had Fuck Owens. <laughs> <laughs> that's genius. Oh, that's great. Was Screaming Sirens? Was that your first band? That was my first band. Yeah, and that the Sirens started in 1982. I had this dream that I wanted to start an all-girl band and it had to be like a cross between saloon girls from Gunsmoke and the hell's angels <laughs> <laughs> i wanted it to be sort of like more country oriented so we got all the great harmonies down like me and rosie flores the second guitar player we worked out a bunch of really beautiful harmonies but when the band first got together almost everyone like boom boom the drummer was had been playing in a rockabilly band and Rosie had been playing in a country band, but we all, it all just wound up going at punk speed. So this yeah. was like the very beginning, like the word cow punk wasn't even a thing then, and right. nor was psycho, but no one had really been calling it psychobilly yet, really, except maybe in England they started it. In those days, you know, there was no internet. So I would quit ads. I figured the hardest thing to find would be like a girl drummer. So I started putting ads in the recycler, which was like a hard copy version of uh, what Craigslist is now or any of those, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so nobody was answering and nobody was answering. And the only girl drummer I could think of that wasn't Gina Shock, who was always away on tour by that time, you know, that was when the Gogos were touring all over the place. The only girl drummer I could think of was Boom Boom Dixon, and she was in Keith Joe Dick's Rockabilly Band. And I, Boom Boom and I hated each other. We absolutely detested each other. We couldn't stand each other. We'd always see each other getting like thrown out of clubs or causing a ruckus or having a fight. And so I just like, finally I was in desperation. So I got a number from someone and I called her up and I actually talked about this on my podcast at some point. 
So I called up and the phone call kind of went like this. Hi, is this Boom Boom? And then her voice, yeah. (laughs) And so so then I didn't know what to say, you know, even though I had kind of rehearsed it in my head and I went, oh, well, this is pleasant. And then the pause, uh, the pause just went on for centuries. The thing she was in disbelief that I was calling her. And then so finally I, I, I thought, like, I better say something. So I was like, what are you doing? And she said, <laughs> she said, and, and then her voice changed. She went, holding laundry. Like, she was really, like, hard, you know, like, she didn't even want to talk to me. And so I just went, oh, well, do you want to start a band with me? <laughs> and so, and she was like, what do you mean? And so I kind of explained explained it to her and we agreed to meet a couple of days later. And when we met, like, even though we were like really suspicious of each other and so, well, like we were doing social distancing just because we were afraid that like a fight would break out. I think if we <laughs> right. got any you might come to blows over just <laughs> being in the yeah. same room together. <laughs> yeah. But, but we had like all the same ideas and stuff. And so then we started working on songs and it was fucking amazing. And like within a couple of, months we were like best inseparable friends and so then like a couple of years later after we'd already been touring and after like an English single had come out and a record and we were on compilations and had songs and movies and stuff I I can't even remember one night I was like how how'd you even agree to like meet with me when I asked you that that was so psychotic and she said I thought it was the sickest thing that had ever happened to me so I, I had to like find out what it was about <laughs> <laughs> oh my so she was like all right I, I i hate this person but i just gotta see what this is all about because it's gotta be yeah, something that, i mean that, that's basically what i was thinking too i was like i can't stand this bitch but she's like the best <laughs> in town <laughs> wow
Okay, Scream and Sirens. My introduction was I was like 15, around 85, Enigma Variations. The song Maniac, yeah. I go, this band is like the funnest band I have ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> Even as a kid and revisiting it now, I listen to that song and I go, holy shit, they sound like they're having a lot of fun. Did you have a lot of fun in Scream and Sirens? Oh my God, yes. Like, I mean, the the first time we recorded, it was with Brian Ahern, who, had, who was a famous country producer and he had just come off uh, Emmy Lou Harris's album. And we were telling him that we needed to like break bottles in the parking lot. And he's like, oh, we can sample it. And we were like, no, we have to do it because we were always like breaking bottles at clubs and screaming and stuff. And then, so that kind of scared him, but they went along with it. And then he really got scared when Rosie said that she needed me and Boom Boom rolling around on the floor and making faces at her so she could play a, a better solo. <laughs> and then um, in Maniac and then like in that song Love Slave, I told them that we had to record a bunch of subliminal tracks, me and whoever else wanted to, like moaning and making orgasm sounds and stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Things that in the 80s would not have been that acceptable to listen to on like mainstream music kind of thing, you know? No, and, and then also like for, I mean, also for Maniac, there was like, there's whole tracks of me, which you could probably hear it, and anyone can still hear it, because this one wasn't mixed subliminally, of me just going, ah, 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 and, and like yelling, and, yeah. You know, it's got <laughs> it's to be, be a childhood fantasy of mine to finally talk to the person that made those sounds in that song, you know, 45 years <laughs> I always actually, I always, I always, I always wondered if that was you or if that was like kind of everybody in the band just going like, let's make the fucking craziest sounds we can make for this song and fuck no, yeah, let's do it. I, every, I, I started that obviously, but everyone in the sirens was like making sounds like that after a while, and then we got so insane with like sounds and language and like screaming sirens catchphrases like one of them was i'm going to put my face away from the computer so it doesn't blow out the the sound and also so i don't get spit on my screen but <laughs> right. we were really in, we were into sylvester the cat and we used to scream yes <laughs> <laughs> and so everyone in the punk scene and even all the people when we were touring would scream that at us and then you would usually yell yes sir like that and break a bottle i mean it was I don't even know how, like, we were always detained at borders because we looked nuts, and then, I don't know, <laughs> and we acted nuts. But we had, like, like in Love Slave, we used to have, this started in Vancouver, because some guy was being obnoxious. I invited him up on stage, and I had a handcuff belt on, which was real handcuffs. And so I was just interviewing him, and then I, I like, took my belt off, and I'm, I was like, do you, you know how to get out of handcuffs? And he says, yeah. And I was like, here. And I went, it goes like this. And he said, oh, yeah, I can do that. And so I went, like, and he did it, but it locked. And then I handcuffed him to this post that was in the middle of the stage. And he was standing there. And we told him to sit down. So he sat on the stage the whole, <laughs> the whole set. But we, every so often we would come up and give him drinks through a straw. And we'd hold a cigarette to his mouth. And someone would be going by doing a solo and like stand right over him so he could look up her skirt and oh, I mean wow. I, 
No, our last shows were so fucking wild. It's hard to describe. Like, also, so anyhow, people in Canada thought that that was a thing that we always did. So people were coming up the next at the next shows, going, "Can I be the guy like handcuffed to the stage tonight?" Like, oh, like it was know? part of the act every show. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> And then wow. I feel like we all used to make out with the audience members like constantly. If there was cute boys, we would just like, I mean, like sometimes they would just have to keep playing a solo over and over because I'd be kissing someone. Or sometimes like I'd, I'd hear the guitar player fuck up or something because she was making out with someone or someone. One time someone ju- jumped on stage with all these condoms blown up like balloons. And this was before condoms were a thing. You could only get them from like that you know, at a truck stop or, I mean, it wasn't like being used for, um, for you know, AIDS wasn't a thing yet. Yeah, then. you couldn't buy so, them like at a grocery store so or something these, like that. All yeah. these condoms, someone, someone brought all these condoms and had written on them in magic markers. <laughs> I had Joey remote <laughs> and like dumped like a trash, brought them to the club and dumped a trash bag of them on stage. At that same, I had Joey Ramone fucking thing on the second set this guy had been sending us drinks up on stage all through the first set. We went over to his table to thank him and he was with the girl and the girl came into like our dressing room with us and he stayed at the stage and then we're like, Wow, your boyfriend is so generous and the and the the girl looked at, at like me and the other girls and, and she just cocked in and went, Honey, that's not my boyfriend. I'm a hooker. And he's my client. He wanted to come here tonight and I was <laughs> We made us come up on stage and play honky tonk women with us. <laughs> and she didn't know how to play guitar, but we, we we just put it on and plugged it in and like made her like, just make a bunch of like art 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 rock noise with us. Oh, but, right. <laughs> wow. But that that was like a normal gig. Like shit like that happened that I did all the time. Fiesta was great. It was a great record, I think. I mean, and the country thing was definitely there pretty strong. What happened with uh, Voodoo? It took a big shift into like a almost like a hard rock or rock, more rock direction for sure. Well, there was like I mean, there was a lot of personnel changes in the band because there was there was like a lot of bands were forming and lots of people were either playing with other people. I mean, this was this was like kind of a lot like what the LA music scene was. Like our first bass player, Fur, like went and joined the Cramps, like. like with it like before you know when we'd only had like two shows or something uh, you know sure and that the first show actually was opening for los lobos at the on club so that was a tiny little club but so there was a lot of personnel shifts in there and so rosie left the band to start a solo career and that that was like fine it was totally amicable but then Again, it was hard to find a great girl guitarist so we got one and she was more rock and rolly and mm. miko our um, original, our bass player after first, she had joined a band called the American Girls, um, but then she hated it, so she wanted to come back after a year. Like she hated like record company life and not having fun and shit like that. So she came back, and then she was on bass, and our bassist Laura moved to rhythm guitar. So and and like Laura and I were all into like all kinds of rock and roll, and then Catherine. Grim, the, the new guitar player, was into lots of rock and roll, and you know, and it just it just became harder edge. There was still all the harmonies and stuff, but it got more yeah. more bluesy, rocky instead of country. 
And then that, that song Voodoo, that's the title of the album. I mean, I made those voodoo dolls for the album. I wrote that song and I used it. I know we're skipping ahead. I used that song as the theme song for my burlesque, my occult burlesque show, Bell Book and Candle, because I wanted it to be on all social media and have a song that I'd have a copyright on, right? It got yeah. removed constantly from Facebook and from Instagram saying, you don't have permission. This is the, you know, copyright of the screaming sirens. And every time I'd have to, you know, if you think you have permission, appeal. And I'd be like, I wrote that song. I sang that song. That's my band. That song is published under my name. So please put it back up. But that even just happened the other day. <laughs> wow. God, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, that sucks. I mean, that's you. That's like, oh my gosh. That's every part of me, including the cover design. I even wrote the font for that cover because they didn't have fonts like I wanted. <laughs> hey, right, right, right. Wow. How did Screaming Sirens end? What was kind of the end of the sirens? Well, we were just, we were touring and touring and touring and still putting out new things, but it was kind of around when Grunge was starting. We could not, it was always a problem trying to get signed to like major labels because in the beginning they were already say, oh, we already have a girl band. Like that would only be a novelty. But then everything was changing to sort of more the quote, quote, Seattle sound and yeah. stuff. And we didn't fit that mold. And then, so also concurrently, the Ringling Sisters was going on, you know, which was an offshoot band. And we got signed by Lou Adler to um, A&M. And we did our first record with him. And then it just like everyone was in other bands or like moving in and out. And we've been doing the silence for like just over 10 years. And then finally, I was just like, I don't think this change going forward and I, I really didn't want to stop doing it but I had so much other things going on like the Ringling Sisters which had also morphed into Anka Pirohani and I was yeah. still like booking clubs and writing clubs and also by the early 90s I was starting belly dancing and burlesque and all, all, you know doing all I, I was just like I think this is like you know about the time to end it and that was a super heartbreaking decision for me but you know <laughs> like you can't just keep it like, you can't keep beating a dead horse, but people keep saying we should do a reunion. We all still talk to each other. Actually, some of us, a couple of years ago, <laughs> as middle-aged women, <laughs> almost got thrown out of a restaurant for being so loud and drunk. <laughs> the tradition because continues when you, when you all die. get together, right? Like, you can't, they can't keep you guys yeah. down, I don't think so. Wow. Yeah, that's something pretty magical that you had with them, it seems like. You know, that's why that's why I asked. Yeah, it was end, great. You know? That was really good. So the last music-related thing that I saw you were a part of was for a band called Peace Division. The song was called Blacklight Sleaze, and it was like a spoken word thing that you were doing over top of, like, electronic music or something like that. It's pretty cool. But that was like a kind of a big a hit song in Europe, too, or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So how that happened was right around the time the sirens ended, it was the same year, actually. The Ringling Sisters had already been doing a lot of spoken word live in between songs yeah. and then also on our record. So I'd been doing a lot. The Ringling Sisters actually started as a writing group. And then Dave Catching was the one that wanted to put it to music to make it into a band. And we reluctantly turned into a band. Oh, I see. Yeah, it was all lead singers from other L.A. bands, like girls that were, you know, it was just a writing group and we would work on stuff and do collaborations. And then that's how that became a band. So 
around that 1993 when the sirens ended and the Ringling Sisters was still going, I did uh, an entire spoken word album for Harvey, Harvey Kubernetes, which came out as a, God, what's the label I'm, I'm forgetting now, but it's, it's still out there. It's called Ruined. And that was concurrent with, you know, the Ringling Sisters doing that kind of stuff on their album. I mean, on that album that we did. So a publisher, my music publisher called me up and um, said, hey, there's this, these, these two DJs in London that want to work with you. And this was years after that, you know, years and years, yeah. which is like in the, two, in the 2000s. So he said, they want to work with you. And I said, what kind of DJs? DJs? And he said, like house or, or electronic or whatever. And I said, I don't really know what that is, but he, he, he was coming to LA, the publisher. So he was going to have a, a meeting with me at Bug Music, who does my publishing. So we did it. Then I thought he was going to be a total idiot, like asshole music industry person. And he was so fun that we're still best friends. Wow. <laughs> um, but so he sampled, I gave them the okay to sample whatever they wanted from spoken word tracks I'd already recorded. And that song Blacklight Sleeve was about when I was, I mean, my spoken word piece, Blacklight Sleeve, was about when I was working as an underage stripper in New York in the 70s, a job that Lydia Lunch got me, but that's a long story, that's for, a story another, for another time. Sure. <laughs> another time. Anyway, so that's what it was about. But I was also going to this bar here called the Blacklight. And when they said that they wanted to call it Blacklight Sleeve, because that was just a line from the song, I thought it was cool because I was going to this bar all the time called the Blacklight here. So I didn't know how famous Peace Division was because I wasn't into that kind of music. So right. on the first time I went on tour to, um, to the UK and Europe was also Blacklight Sleeves had just been released. And before it was released, they said, we're not just using samples now. You're going to be the lead vocal. So it, it turned into Peace Division featuring Pleasant Gaiman. Right. And it was the whole vocal. And I, it entered the charts really high up there. And... I, I was like, you know, I was there all excited. I was going on tour for dancing and I walked into like Top Shop or somewhere and heard my fucking voice on the music and I, I just couldn't believe it. It was crazy. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. That's so amazing. That, that song became a huge hit, but that also, that's not the only music stuff I've, I've done since then. There's, there's been other recordings. Oh, you have? Okay. Yeah. Including like been being recording now and also going to put out a record probably late this year, early next year, of of all duets with Jeff, Jeff Drake from the Joneses. Like, oh, which nice. was another really popular play band, yeah. Right. Wow, how cool. Well, when it, that's, okay, so that's coming out in the next year or so? That, like I, I don't know when it will be out. We didn't start recording it. We've only been rehearsing. And then, there, but there's some other, other records or songs coming out, too, that I've been singing on in lockdown. <laughs> or, cool. Or that. Then the the gray area between lockdown and LA's open again. Good talking to you, Pleasant. Great talking to you again. Yeah, we'll we'll reconvene. Yeah, yes, we'll reconvene, we will, reconvene we for part two, part two. <laughs> very soon. Okay. Okay, Pleasant. All, All right. right, take care. Bye. Welcome back for a little bit. This is the goodbye and thank you part of the episode, and I have to say, I love talking to Pleasant Gaiman. I mean, I could have talked to her for hours and hours more. That was so much fun talking to her. I mean, we were laughing a lot during this interview, a lot of which maybe I kind of cut out too here and there. Pleasant has so many incredible stories and such a crazy and rad history. 
all that stuff from the early days of punk rock in LA, her time in the Screaming Sirens. She has the best stories to tell. Well, we are going to be hearing more from Pleasant very, very soon. Definitely keep your eyes and ears out for parts two and three with Pleasant Gaiman. Those episodes will be coming out one in July, one in August in the year 2021 this year. I cannot wait. That being said, thank you so much, Pleasant, for taking the time out of your very, very busy schedule and life to talk to me for this episode. My life is made much richer and better for knowing and being able to talk to you. Thank you so much, Pleasant. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Play 9 Alehouse and Good Life Digestive Health for your support of the Bobcast. Remember, go to Plan9Alehouse.com and also visit Good Life at GoodLifeDigestiveHealth.com for more information. Thank you for listening. Remember, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please do consider joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash I Want to Party with Bob. Thank you so much for listening to the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. <laughs>